1: Man, we said we were on sabbatical, and boy, we are. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very
3: nice to be asked along to the
1: party. Oh, well, well we just... we're so pleased you're here. I'm Thank so glad
3: that when you played truant from school, you said, Frank, come with us, it'll be great. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so true. Exactly. True. so true. Yeah. We'll go to the library.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've got the gobstoppers. Um, hello, and welcome to our first backlisted special, I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read.
1: And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Uh, The format of these specials differs from the main backlisted podcasts, the, the usual ones that we do, in that they'll feature just one guest choosing a number of books in an area that they know something about, they care something about, and most importantly, they can talk about for an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, let's see what happens as we welcome to so the first backlisted special on children's books, Frank Cottrell-Boys. <laughs> so, thanks, Frank Cottrell-Boys. So we're joined <laughs> by the award-winning novelist and screenwriter Frank Cottrell-Boys, an official friend of Batlisted who first appeared on episode number 79 to discuss Torve Janssen's Moomin Valley in November and then teamed up with fellow writer Catherine Rundell for episode 137 on Tristram Shandy, and then again for the now legendary 2021 (laughs) Christmas show with Uh, the weeping in it on the railway, children. Our most Um, downloaded
0: show ever. Our most
1: downloaded show ever. That's true, Frank. That's true and all. welcome, Um, Welcome
0: back, Frank. Welcome back. Okay, so Frank's best-selling children's books include Millions, which won the 2004 Carnegie Medal, Sputnik's Guide to Life on Earth, uh, shortlisted for the Carnegie in 2016, most recently, Noah's Gold. All of these books illustrated by Stephen Lenton and published by Macmillan. But there's also, isn't there, I think, Frank, a new book? The Wonder
3: Brothers. Yeah. June and July.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Exciting. So one of the reasons for doing this show is that Frank made the news before Christmas when he and fellow writer Robin Stevens vented their frustration. About the lack of critical conversation around children's books and how this is resulting in a narrowing of choice. The point they were making was simple if you don't have conversations about children's books, they quickly lose visibility in the culture. So we thought, what better way of helping that conversation happen than by asking Frank about some of the books he loved when
1: he was growing up? So, Welcome to the backlisted children's book special. Listen, when you made that statement, when when you and Robin issued your manifesto, when you nailed it to the door of the cathedral, <laughs> what, what's, what were you expecting there to be the, the surge in response that you got?
3: Not at all, because honestly, I've been saying the same things for about a decade. It's just a very <laughs> yeah. simple point about choice. And I, I don't really know why. I mean, I've na- I've gone to that cathedral door, nailed it on, Every yeah. morning, it's just blown away. For some reason, it stayed <laughs> up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know why it worked this time. I think I had a good, I good, I had a good aphorism because it, it was sort of the swirl had started with people talking about celebrity authors and yeah. being cross about celebrity authors, which they always are. And my contention is it's not celebrity authors' fault. And actually, some of the celebrities that people are talking about got famous by being good at writing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I said, I think I said something like, "But blaming uh, David Williams because he doesn't write books that you like is like blaming Pizza Express for not selling scatter cushions, because there, <laughs> you know, there is a choice. Yeah. Somebody yeah. needs to tell yeah. you where to buy scatter cushions, and, yeah. and nobody is. You know,
0: don't you think that, that that's sort of the case with books in general, though, in the culture that it is peculiar to me? I mean, I know there's there's the Sarah Cox show and there's the the Graham Norton Show, but it, it, we're not overburdened really with with places where people can um, can discuss books in the broader culture. I suppose there's a lot of recommendation that goes on, on online. But do you think children's books are, st- are, are particularly disadvantaged?
3: Oh, I mean, definitely. I mean, I know, I know what you're talking about, but the Booker Prize is still there. Yeah. There isn't really a, tra- a prize for children's books. And if there is, it's very under understated anyway. When I won the mm. Carnegie, I honestly thought when I got back to Liverpool, there would be an open-top tour of the city <laughs> <laughs> and the boss kept me holding it up. You know, I, I didn't know that it wasn't a big deal. Um,
1: <laughs> it's a hard way to find out, man. It's a hard way. But, but
3: um, I mean, I, again, in that interview on Today, I said, look, you know, I, I have a control experiment because I write films. Yeah. And the, the most wretchedly rubbish film that I write is still guaranteed, you know, a, a a quarter of a page review in every broadsheet. I'll still probably be on front row. I might even be on the one show. Someone from the film will be on the one show. Won't be the writer, uh, and that's a film that'll open on a Friday and close on a Monday, and hardly anyone will go and see. And if they did, they won't remember it. But like, I could write a towering masterpiece of children's literature, which I do. Like every Yeah, (laughs) and and i'd be very i'd be very lucky to get like i I will be jumping around the house if i get a sentence in in a roundup you know i mean there are people who review children's books and they're brilliant alex O'Connell, and uh, you know the, the, the
1: people flying the flag there but they're very beleaguered and they're very very short of space and frank do you perceive i know you're going to say yes but i'm asking this question anyway do you perceive that there is a public appetite for it? Or is it playing, De- I'm playing devil's advocate here, is it a, an appetite amongst children's writers who would just like more coverage for their books? I mean, do you, do you feel the public is in need of that conversation, is wanting to have that conversation and doesn't have a forum for it? I feel children are in need of it. Yeah. you know Because you know how much you gained from the books that
3: you read when you were little. Yeah. And and how 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 much power you you continue to draw from them, and how True. much True. they helped build the the apparatus of happiness inside you. You know, we should all have found that out the last couple of years how important it is mm. to yeah. know how to be happy, and I gained that from children's books, and I didn't gain them entirely from the children's books that were being. You know, at the forefront of, of publicity at the time, uh, but and actually, I was very well served. You know, we had a, a children's book club in school, where that scoop thing. We had K. web we had Jack we had and Ori. We had yeah. come
1: on to that, won't we? Yeah, we
3: all were. those things that were kind of books in translation, and now that's narrowed down to to virtually nothing. You know, so if you don't, if David Williams isn't what you like. There's really not that much else on the show. I mean, I am absolutely not slagging David Walliams at all whatsoever. But I definitely think there's a place. But there's somewhere that there are other things, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about books you liked as children. I've just been writing something about Winnie the Pooh and the House at Pooh Corner, and uh, with, with, with which I have quoted from the works of Frank Cottrell Boyce because he, <laughs> he introduced a <laughs> volume of A. A. Milne's Oh, happy half hours! Pieces of comic writing, and you wrote the script of Goodbye, Christopher Robin, as well. Yeah, I did. You? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
1: But personally, I think Winnie the Pooh is my introduction to comic writing. It's not a children's book per se. It's my, the yeah. earliest introduction I got to the beats of comic, comic writing, which obviously is a huge thing for, for me in my, in my life, yeah. and in my heart. A- absolutely, as you say, you know,
3: Frank. it's very difficult to make someone laugh off a page. Yeah. And I guess what Milne does so brilliantly in Winnie the Pooh is that it's so quotable <laughs> that yeah. you go and yeah, yeah. say those lines yeah. and yeah. you get you get a laugh. You get he a gives it yeah. so generous. You know, Andy gets the laugh for
1: saying that line. You yeah. know? Pathetic. That's what it is. Just choose one. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, Frank, what's the first book on your pile that you've chosen for us today?
3: Um. And the first sort of big fat book that I read, which I remember very clearly, reading on the bus, which was T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Troubled masterpiece, but an absolutely (laughs) extraordinary... Troubled masterpiece
1: or Troubled Man? Wasn't T.H. White a troubled man? He was a troubled man, wasn't he? Well, he was troubled. (laughs) Yes, Yes, OK. Sylvia
3: Sylvia Townsend Warner wrote a biography of him, which is an amazing... Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a very, very long school report. Very
1: disapproving school (laughs) report. (laughs) And and it's like every page is like, you'll never guess what he's done now. (laughs) Yes, Okay. yeah. Nikki, we got a clip from The Once and Future King before we talk about it.
0: We have got a clip that I took from a BBC radio play from 2014. Um, And this is where Merlin is describing his unique perspective on life. Uh, or the way he sees life, which is slightly
2: back to front. You know how much information
3: I've got cluttering up my brain? The entire contents of the Encyclopaedia Britannica doesn't even come close. It's one of the perils of living backwards, as I'm sure I mentioned when we first met. Or didn't I? If you did, I'm not sure I understood it then either. Mm. Roll on the Age of Enlightenment. Incidentally, what was I doing when you turned up? Fetching water from the well. Oh, yeah. The absence of plumbing. No wonder they'll call this the Dark Ages.
0: Brian Sibley wrote that script. Yeah, it's a very, very good adaptation, isn't it? Um,
3: Yeah. I mean, Brian wrote the the Radio 4 adaptation of Lord of the Rings, which is a massive influence on the films. He did The Box of Delights and this. This Mm. is so good. He's so brilliant.
0: So what's going on there, Frank?
3: Well, okay. so in the first half of the first book of The Once and Future King is very familiar. And that's how I ended up reading it. It's The Sword in the Stone, which was filmed by Disney. And it's got this great, it's got this brilliant idea in it that Merlin, it's a prequel to Mallory, is what uh, T.H. White called it. And it's uh, The Education of King Arthur by Merlin. So uh, Arthur at that time doesn't know he's King Arthur. He sort of lives this sort of feral life in a little castle in the woods. Merlin turns up, but Merlin is living his life backwards so he can remember things from the future. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it has this brilliant play with anachronism, um, which makes it incredibly light, but it's got this, there's a sort of magic in that. Because Merlin is in your time, which often in historical novels, people do that, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, mm. it, it, Hilary Mantel or whatever, it's like the hero is nice because he's a bit like someone from the 21st century, <laughs> not like these other tosses from the Middle Ages. Yes, and it's yes. always that, isn't it? It's, um, yeah. it's Kevin Costner delivering a baby in Robin Hood and all that. So he does that, but he does it explicitly. And and somehow that frees the description of the Middle Ages or this invented Middle Ages. So it feels really, really real. The wild wood, the stuff about falconry, which of course is, is full of detail, but also the stuff about armor, all this sort of boyish delight in detail is in there. And it but it floats. It's not, it's not clogged. It's like a lot of historical writing is like it's a, like an old antique shop, isn't it? It's full of dust yeah. and, and bits and bobs. Feels really alive because well, I suppose because Merlin is T.H. White,
1: and right? It, that's interesting. Yeah. What's the What's the falconry thing?
3: Well, T.H. White was a um, trained a gosse. I mean, he was very faddy. He had this great axiom, which is, uh, if you're sad, learn something new. So he was constantly mm-hmm. learning to fly, learning to drive. Right. Uh, but he tried to learn medieval falconry, and if you read. Um, Helen J. Macdonald's H is yeah. for Org Hawk. She kind Indeed. of follows his version of the gosp. And he was a dreadful, dreadful falconer. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he was. was he? <laughs> oh, he's awful. Yeah. But he, tra- he, but, he said, but presents it with confidence, which is absolutely the, yeah.
3: But, but then when you read it and you've you've read her, you think no, he's telling you he's doing a really terrible job. He just doesn't get that he's doing a terrible job. Because right, okay. wasn't yeah.
0: he? He was. A, I mean, he was a teacher, right, at Stowe, and then he kind of yeah. dropped out and sort of lived like a, 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 lived on the land really badly as a sort of semi-feral lifestyle, doing hunting and fishing and badly yeah. training his, his goshawk.
3: Hunting and fishing, yeah, and and then in the Second World War, he disappeared to the west of Ireland and uh, did a lot of goose shooting, and you know lived off. Well, by then he could live off his writing because he he wrote this monster success, which wasn't good for him. I don't think.
1: I was going to ask you: Was the Once and Future King a bestseller when it when it was first published, or it was did it did it take a little while to to warm no, up? It
3: was absolutely huge
1: because, uh,
3: well, you know, obviously Disney bought it, but the Camelot is based on it. It was a sort of big cult among the Kennedy family. Um, it, it couldn't have, it couldn't be bigger. It was huge. I mean, it just it crops up if you're reading stuff about the '60s in America. Mm. It crops up time and time again. The ga- guys who flew the the X the X ten the stealth plane, you know that big black mm. sort of yeah. stratospheric yeah. plane. They used because it's boring flying those things. They used to read the Once and Future King. It's like <laughs> it was everywhere.
0: Because it's what about five books really, isn't it? And it's it, he wrote it over um, a, a period of time.
3: Yeah, and it's the other books that really grip me. I loved uh, Sword in the Stone. Because I've
0: only read the Sword in the Stone, I'd be really interested. Because oh, oh. uh, apparently the la- the Lancelot one, the il- the ill the ill made night. Ill made night.
3: I mean, what what titles? Queen of Air and Darkness, uh, the ill made light, the Candle in the Wind.
0: Yeah, mm. and Lancelot is ugly. This is the the key to his his yeah. portrayal. So he has to be a three times as good as everybody else as a as a as a knight in order to win Arthur's favour.
3: But he also is trying to be good all the time and of course falls in love with Guinevere. So he's like literally the worst, <laughs> the biggest sinner. So he's this he's the serpent in in paradise, but he's he loves paradise more than anybody else does. You know, it's it's it, it is even I, I must have been like eleven or twelve, but even I and I, I was gripped by it partly because it was it's very sexy that, you know, it's not explicit, but it sort of pulses with desire. <laughs> and I, I didn't quite know what was happening to me when I was reading it, but it's it, it's heartbreaking, that book. Absolutely heartbreaking. And there's a scene where um, Lancelot is asked to perform a miracle because he's so good and the Holy Grail thing is going on and all that stuff. And he knows that he can't because he's like this massive sinner. And he kind of feels that if he, if he doesn't, then he'll give the game away and everyone will sort of sus is a it's a really strange situation but you're completely in it with him you're thinking and and he does a miracle and everybody's really thrilled but he's the only one who knows that the miracle is that he was allowed to do a miracle mm,
1: mm, <laughs> yes it. it's so weird and, and are these books much read now
3: I, do you know i don't i don't know anyone else who's
1: read them Yeah, right. So so I've I've heard of them. Of course, I remember selling them when I was a bookseller. Yeah, I think I've read the Sword in the Stone. Read that when when I was a kid, maybe. But I have no sense at all. I'd love to know if if you're listening to this and you're a children's bookseller or a bookseller, whether this still does decent numbers through the tills here in the here in 2023. I have no sense of it at all. You would recommend them, though, Frank. You think they're, I
3: don't you, know because, like, you haven't read I, I, them for a long time. Times have changed. No, I do. I dip into them all the time, and they're so vivid to me that they're like my personal memories. Um, right. I, I honestly, they're so vivid that there's some scenes in there that I think I've lived. I know that sounds bad, mm. Um, mm. and they've become part of me. Um, and I don't. I, I'm sure there are things to disapprove of them. Like, for instance, <laughs> the the book that I loved most was the, the Queen of Air and Darkness, which is about the Orkney family. And now if I read it, I can see that part of that is a kind of very English, anti-Irish, racism is the wrong word, but scorn for kind of Irish ideas about honour and bravery and swagger. And mm. it's a bit like Alan Breck in um, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Kidnapped. Kidnapped. It's like he's glamorous, but he's also an idiot. And they're like that. And I like now that like my family's, My wife's from the West of Ireland. I read them, I think, I know what he's getting at here, but they are lovely. I really do want to be around them, you know, (laughs) the way they call each other, my hearts and my heroes.
0: (laughs) Your second choice has also got a wizard in it.
3: Yeah. I said before, like, building the apparatus of happiness. So I've chosen The Wizard
1: of Earthsea. Ah, yes, by Ursula K. Le Guin. Ursula K. Le Guin. (laughs) K. Le Guin. (laughs) Whose name comes up regularly uh, in in discussions of authors we ought to feature on the main show? Yeah, this one, oh, really this this uh, appearance, this cameo appearance by Ursula K. Le Guin, will not preclude her getting her own full episode <laughs> of Bat listed in due course. Everybody, don't worry. Now Ursula Le Guin died, didn't she, two or three years ago? Maybe.
3: Yeah, she's quite. It's quite recent. Yeah. Um, hopeless at telling.
1: I think of her more as a writer of science fiction than as a children's writer, Frank. I'm sure that's how she thought of herself as well. Right. When, when does this date from in her career, The Wizard of Earthsea? It's, six, it's
0: 68, so she, it, it was... I mean, you know, she was she. She'd published other other books before. She would definitely published other sci-fi before.
3: Yeah, she was big, right? I mean, because it came as a, requ- as a commission, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. was a, she she right? started with anything?
0: a couple of stories, I think. They started as a couple of stories, uh, and uh, the, that's when she kind of created the Earthsea, um, what we might now yeah. call the Earthsea universe. Um, and then uh, uh, Wizard of Earthsea came in in sixty-eight. In and it sort of became a trilogy, and I think in the end there were maybe five books uh, um, in, the, yeah. in the in the sequence.
3: I, I think I was in year six when I read it. I can remember everything about reading it. I can remember what chair I read it in. I can remember the font, which is a beautiful font, and uh, most of all the map.
1: Incredible! It, yeah. It's
3: got the best map of um, any book with a map is great, but this is way the best map of any books because it's um, an archipelago, which I. I I don't think if anybody's had done that before, but so the whole of Earth Sea is just a, a massive archipelago with and the names are brilliant. And I think I could probably have named all the islands at one point. Um
1: how many can you name now? <laughs> go. Oh god, let's <laughs> do that.
3: John's Kargad, uh, the hands, dragon's run, pelnor, ufish. Um, oh this is the, oh uh, the main one where's the school for <laughs>
1: rogue Yeah, <the, the>, <laughs> yay uh, <laughs> that was very impressive i've Amazing. got a question right we're talking about frank's favorite children's books and we so you've chosen your first you've cheated twice now frank because you've basically chosen 10 of your favorite children's books <laughs> for, your, for your first two choices what why why is the fantasy novelist drawn to five volume sequences why can't they just stop at 1? I kind of wish she
3: had because um, this is I feel
1: dreadful saying
3: this but like in About of After 1 is extraordinary it's a very short sequel to or it it happens in Earthsea, but the the other's a bit sort of drops <laughs> off a cliff really <laughs> I
1: Does mean it, drops off yeah. the cliff
3: right yeah.
0: she gets a bit kind of taken up with her own sort of a te- moral kind of it becomes know, th-
1: very ideological yeah. and very um
0: Political, the the father's yeah.
3: shore I remember being really disappointed by.
0: What,
1: and what, what what was what is the political outlook she's seeking to express then?
3: I think she thought that they were very male-centric, the books, because they are, you know, she chose to write about wizards, who are traditionally male, and the female characters in The Wizard of Earthsea don't have a lot of agency. Yeah. And they are, and one of them in particular, is your kind of seductress character. She's only in it for a little bit, but she's, you know so from a purely feminist point of view that that's unsatisfactory but mm. the, her attempt to correct that feels apologetic that you know it doesn't have the energy and conviction that she had when she just threw herself into that world that's interesting it's a good uh,
0: female character in Tombs of that isn't it it's tenara oh
3: oh absolutely amazing and she should have given herself more credit for having done that i think yeah. But, seems about extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary
0: book. It's interesting, but there's, there's, all, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, people have said that, that unlike most of the wizards that are kind of derived from Mallory, you know, that Merlin is a sort of middle-aged academic, which you could say in a way T.H. White does and Garner does with Cadellan and obviously Gandalf in, in, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, the original thing about Earthsea was to have a young wizard a young wizard being trained.
2: We've got a clip of her explaining about how she came up with that idea. Oh, right. you want to have a listen?
1: Yeah, brilliant. Yes, please.
2: I'd been asked to, to write a fantasy for teenagers. And I thought, oh, I haven't written anything for kids. So I sort of said, I, you know, I, I don't know how to write for children. It's, it's, a, it's a different art. And he said, well, think about it. So I went home and, and I did think about it. And because the book was to be for young people, I guess is what put it in my head, that all the wizards in all the books that I had read in 1967 were old. They were old men, old white men, with white beards and white hair and peaky caps, you know. But you can't be an old man without having been young. And it occurred to me, well, how does a wizard, how does he start out? And well, obviously he's got a lot to learn. So where do you learn things? You learn them in school. So you go to wizard school? Ooh. Okay, now I'm telling you, this is 1967. <laughs> uh, there have been other wizard schools, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not
3: just that he's young. Yeah. He's from nowhere. Yeah. He's poor. You know, he's got a, he's, he's a single his mum is a single parent. They live in the back of beyond, no wizards come that way. And he goes to this posh school, you know, and all that thing of like going to a, a big venerable institution, feeling you don't really belong there, and because you don't really belong there, trying a bit too hard, and in this case creating an absolute disaster. By doing that but being sure that he's great as well um that social mobility side of it and also the sexiness of knowledge you know that that book really made knowing things cool and Mm. in particular there's like two different ways to know things there's there's illusion which is impressive and fancy and talkative and a bit boris johnson-y and there's also (laughs) another teacher called origin who who walks around and uh, really gets to understand a particular flower so that he really understands that flower before moving on to the next flower or the next stream or the next pebble and gets to know a bit, you know, you just said Galangana, a bit like Alan Garner who lives in this, tiny patch of land but knows it, it to the to earth's the, core and it's the naming it's the power of
0: real naming. the real names i just remember still remember that bit names. when ged, ged he gets his name ged doesn't it? it's amazing yes yeah,
2: one- another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals
1: So we, so we would have read these books, 60s and 70s. Um, yeah. And what, Frank, you were saying the themes you're describing there in the Earthsea books, they are very 60s, that, that kind of um, young upstarts. That's one of the great 60s yeah. themes of film and literature and theatre in the 1960s, as we know. Yeah. And the young upstarts would have included um, Puffin, to some extent, wouldn't they? You know, the Puffin, the books of our, we're all old and Old now, and we remember the Puffin Club from the 60s and 70s, and how important K. Webb was running Puffin and the 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 way in which she and the people she worked with pushed books which were often challenging is the right word, uh, yeah. But they knew were good. Uh, Absolutely, and, in front and books of us.
3: and books in translation. A lot of books in translation, yeah. which. Um, that doesn't seem to happen very much anymore at all
1: i suppose including um yeah the moomin books for the, moomins, yeah.
3: the, the moomins the uh, moomins Agatha agaton sacks i've just reread <laughs> which Sachs, is a yes. swedish detective book you know <laughs> mad things uh like but yeah she, she felt, uh, eric and it makes you feel like the world yeah. eric Kastner, yeah of course but yeah. you felt like the world belonged to you you know yeah
0: and it was it, it was also that genius of the, the the club idea, wasn't it? And Puffin Post and the, that sense of being of being part of something with other with other with other kids, which,
3: yeah. And I, I mean, I, obviously, I didn't go on those. You could go on a Puffin holiday. Yeah, I know. never trips, afford it. <laughs> no, no. I'm my world away. But I read that Kay Web biography and she wasn't she was brilliant. A brilliant editor. She wasn't great on health and safety, I don't think. Right. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> she I obviously the, thought I'm... we at the Puffin Club had members to spare. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Your next book is also was also another classic Puffin author.
3: Well, I've chosen but my, my an anthology of Joan Aiken's stories, and my copy is called A Small Pinch of Weather. Yes. But I think those stories were always being shuffled around. Joan Aiken produced. She was like she's like a, a kid's Michael Moorpark or something. You know? Over a hundred books. <laughs> but 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 all in different kind of franchises. Yeah. You know, so there's like right. these books yeah. about there's books set in a in, in the you know the wolf world where Yeah, wolves um, of Willoughby Chase and Yeah, yeah. where G- James the Third is King of England or whatever. Uh, and there's Mortimer and the the Mortimer the Raven, this raven yes. that goes on yeah, yeah. Nevermore, yeah. which was sort of very Very overtly funny, and they were written for Jack and Ori. But what I loved, and honestly, it was like I remember reading them, thinking, "Are you allowed to do this?" Were the Armitage stories, which are stories about a very, very middle class family. Like for some reason, that didn't bother me. Um, Who and they live in a. I want to say they live in a magic world, but like the magic is so taken for granted (laughs) in these stories. that it's just sort of an annoyance, isn't it? Yeah. There's a, they've got, like, an uncle who comes to stay who's who's sort of badgered somebody and bought he's bought the apple of discord off somebody. Yeah. And he's very bumptious and he's a colonel and he doesn't notice things. So he doesn't notice that the furies, the ironies, are camped on the doorstep because they want the apple of discord back. But the rest of it is like, it's as though that happened in a William Brown story.
1: Mm, you know, there's this yeah. sort of mm. grumpily
3: preoccupied father, a kind of quite caring but sort of slightly distant mother, and kids dealing with all these, you know, elemental forces. But there's none of that kind of like, oh, the adults wouldn't believe us type of thing. It's like th- they would, but they would just be busy. Oh, the Furies are on the doorstep. Well, you know, can you see to that, darling? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And
0: it, it, the the great-uncle great Gavin is a brilliant character because he's just incredibly sort of... Um, He's just grumpy all the way through. And sort of... and he
3: can see them, can't he? He yeah, can yeah. see the Furies. They're on the doorstep. The Furies are on the doorstep, pointing, the kindly ones, pointing accusingly at him, and he just sort of breezes past <laughs> them all the time.
1: <laughs> My wife always says that she, when she was, that she's a voracious reader as a child, she grew up in a working class household and she says it never bothered me class was not a thing that bothered me when I was a child reader it never bothered me amongst her favorite books were the Bagthorpe song yep, by Helen Cresswell she said and I didn't read those thinking guru I resent these these Bagthorpes with their nice house and their their ramshackle existence she was just I just I thought how lovely it must be to live like that she says yeah. she used to watch the the good life on TV and think well, that's the house I want to live in. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Margot <laughs> yeah. and Jerry's house, by the way, not Tom and Barbara's. Margot and Jerry's lovely house. Yeah, it the depends though, divides. doesn't
3: it? Because so, like, some of those, like, well, I said the armistice didn't bother me, but I hated Matilda. I, co- I couldn't bear yeah, to look at Matilda because I knew that the finger was being pointed. The baddies and the ridiculous people were my people, you know?
1: So it depends. What well, do you and mean like, by Ro- Matilda by rolled up? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, Idiot, it's you know, yeah, I, class okay. hatred. How are you? It's awful. Yeah. And the twits. Uh, yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Have
0: friend. you got a bit to read from uh, the Armitages? Well, I've, I've got a little bit here about Great Uncle Gavin, which is quite funny.
1: What do you, oh, you read it, John.
3: We love to hear it in your voice.
0: Okay. So this is Mark. <laughs> There's Mark and Harriet, the kids, right? And Mark is being told off by his great uncle Gavin. Here we go. Bless my soul, boy. Nearly all great-uncle Gavin's remarks began with this request. Bless my soul. What are you doing now? Reading? Bless my soul. Do you want to grow up a muff? (laughs) Uh, A muff, (laughs) great-uncle. What is a muff exactly? And Mark pulled out the notebook in which he was keeping a glossary of great-uncle Gavin. A muff? Why, a muff is a, a funkser, a duffer, a froust, a tug, a swat, a miserable little sneaky milksop. Mark was so busy writing down all the words that he forgot to be annoyed. You ought to be out of doors, sir. You ought to be out playing footer. Oh, but you need 22 people for that, Mark pointed out. And there's only Harriet and me. Besides, it's <laughs> summer, and Harriet's a bit of a duffer at French cricket. Don't be impudent, boy. Gad, when I was age, I'd been out collecting birds' eggs. Birds' eggs, said Mark, scandalised. But I'm a subscribing member of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Barflies, then, growled his great uncle.
1: <laughs> it's brilliant. It's really good. So joan akin was was she she had a long and glorious career did she I love the description of her as the michael Moorcock. <laughs> yeah she,
0: she was two thousand and four two thousand and four she died and she wow. died. she's got
3: that kind of Moorcockian volcanicness as well so if you read if you do sit down and read all the endless sequels to the Wolves of Be Chase there's full of contradictions and discontinuities yeah. because she was just like, "Get it down, get it down, yeah. get it down it's okay. like there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing considered about them. They're just full of this energy energy right. of like, wouldn't really. it be great if, if yeah. there was a huge pink <laughs> yeah. whale? Or we had a gun that could shoot us to America? Or you know, it's like, it's, like, it's like, let's do it.
0: Bizarrely, she wrote a whole sequence, I think six or seven, Jane Austen. Jane Austen sequels. Sequels, you know, Matsfield Revisited
3: and
1: the, the young Miss Ward. And Yeah. And were those written for children? Were those no, sequels I think... for children, or were they were they? Books for adults.
3: I think they were for Jane to show how she could do it.
1: Yeah,
3: (laughs) if she put her mind to it. But I want to say there's one story. I mean, all the amateur stories are fun, and I really like them. And some of them have really stuck with me. Smoke from Cromwell's time. Harriet's heirloom, where she inherits a. a, Yeah, it doesn't matter. But uh, there's one: the serial garden. Yeah. It's one of the most painfully romantic and beautiful story that you've ever read. And it starts with um, cutting out of, you know, do you remember the back of cereal packets? There used to be models that you would cut out and bend flap A, glue to flap C. He's building one of these and it's from an engraving of, um, and they're on breakfast bricks, which is (laughs) a rubbish cereal. And, And he builds this garden and it's from a set of 18th century engravings. And it turns out that someone has been hidden in this garden magically inside the engraving. Uh, for love and um, he's waiting for the lover to come yeah and and you do know who the lover is and it's uh, who's now an old man and it's it's so beautiful it's so perfectly plotted Uh, it's like a little piece of Mozart isn't it it's just and and it's heartbreaking story amazing
0: everybody should read it but I can't tell you the ending but I know that Joan Aitken herself was so mortified By she had so much correspondence from people saying how how could you have how could you have done this to these beautiful characters she took it out of her collection of stories because she was so she felt that she really yeah and it is it's certainly of all the Armitage ones which which I thank you for recommending because I read them I read them this week what joy I mean amazing but that is the that's just one of the great
1: saddest stories ever told it's it's absolutely heartwrenching story. Um, we're talking to Frank about his favourite children's books, and uh, we've, we've talked about fiction so far. But uh, maybe we should talk about non-fiction. And John, my dear co-host, John has written the following words on my notes: <laughs> discussion of I Spy. <laughs> oh right! Now I Spy book. Now I I Spy books. Who wants to start on these bu- beautiful things? I Spy books. Frank, did you did you have a set of I Spy books as a child? I've still got them.
0: Oh, uh, I've still got mine as well. Not here, Frank, but it's like it is. But don't don't you think if you were a curious child in the nineteen late sixties early seventies they were absolutely the most brilliant thing. I mean, I've talked about them on Lotlisted and have, how yeah, right. how oh, my yeah. my father was absolutely right. mortified because they used to. It was the Daily Mail where big Chief I Spy would would would, would communicate with his chief... couldn't
3: Chiefs. be more problematic.
0: Yeah, and so we weren't allowed to have the Daily Mail in the house.
3: You know, as far as cultural appropriation goes. <laughs>
1: Oh, I remember, didn't Big Chief I-Spy have his um, wigwam, presumably? Wigwam by the water, Wigwam yeah. by the water. Yeah, wasn't it, wasn't he, wasn't it Shepherds Bush Green? That Something like that, yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: I can remember being on a on a birthday outing in the 70s, <laughs> driving through Shepherds Bush Green, and this is true, looking desperately round for Big Chief I-Spy's wigwam and seeing and seeing nothing. You used to get a little badge, an I-Spy badge, which you'd... And, uh, that yeah. was, and
0: and and yeah. you can see other people who had I Spy badges. And it was a bit like you know people with VWs waving. And say, <laughs> amazing! There's another you know. What what do, are you? And I always mine were always on archaeology and George, the countryside. Do you know
1: anything about the the wizard publisher who came up with that idea? Do we know anything about how lucrative they were? Or I, I think it was very who lucrative. The plan for it. Big Chief I Spy was Charles Worrall, a former
0: headmaster who created I Spy towards the end of his working life. He retired in fifty six, but lived until ninety five. When he died at the age of one hundred and
1: six. <laughs> wow! Did he? Yeah. Was he? And he presumably absolutely loaded. Yeah, I think Presu- I mean, David Bellamy like became Big Chief ice spy That's at one point right. in
0: the eighties. Yeah.
3: Gosh. Well, they're uh, about noticing things.
0: They were about noticing things.
3: The beginning of happiness is noticing things, isn't it? So they were telling you to keep looking, and there were things that are problematic. I mean, everything was hierarchical, wasn't it? Yeah. So. I, you, I mean, we moved like, this is terrible, but I, I, I had I spy birds, right? and we yeah, lived. I lived with my grand right next to the docks, and we never saw any, but we saw seagulls. That was it. And then we moved. <laughs> I, and they weren't, there's no seagulls in there. And so we, we moved this, uh, to this um, housing estate on the edge of Liverpool, which had um, fields behind it, and I was like, this is going to be ace. So I just sat in the window with this ice spy boat and honestly... Because, of course, what had happened is to clear the, the estate, there was, like, every tree for miles around had gone. There was, like, nothing for a bird to eat or roost on. And I sat there with this book, and, like, literally never saw a bird for months. And we went to Wales for the day and I saw dippers. I thought, yes, Banzai, dippers. And there's hundreds <laughs> of them. Just like, I got home, dippers are not in the book. What? <laughs> and everything frame. was hierarchical.
1: Fact, there's something Bucketian about that. that you just uh, <laughs> oh. Endlessly waiting for the bird that never comes. The and bird, when the and bird the, of, does come. It's not they, in the they, book. Those books dominated
0: oh. our, my childhood in a way. You know, family trips out were all about I need to collect some more things for my own Okay, books.
3: So I'll tell you this little well, two things. One is that in that spring, spring after we moved in, the whole estate was just absolutely invaded by house martins because there was so much mud. And it was like a two-species living space. <laughs> and, and five five bloody points you got for a house, Martin. For Christ's sake. And it was like, I knew I was seeing this like massive wildlife spectacle, but we got five points uh, for it. The uh, um, same
0: thing happened to me with waxwings. There was a massive invasion oh. of waxwings in felling in the northeast when I was a wow. kid. And waxwings weren't in the book, but I wrote them. There's a bit where you could say an, inter- in. <laughs> an interesting bird that you have seen. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's anyway.
3: um, So, the reason I've still got my copies is that I've been decanting my mum and dad's house. They died last year. And I found Ice Buy in the countryside. Um, And it was just full of lies, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) 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 filled it in full of, you did not, as if you did. The, I, the back lie, <laughs> <laughs> But this is so right. So we we went to the same place. This is too. This is getting very autobiographical now. But we went to the same place on holiday every year. We we saw the Dippers, uh, a tiny village just outside Congalloon in, in North Wales. Every year, no no exceptions. That's the only place we ever went. And um, so it scattered my mum and dad's ashes there. Then I found these I Spy books in our house. And on the last page of I Spy in the Countryside, it says, "What's your favourite view?" My dad had filled it in with with a tempo pen, and he described uh, where we went on our holidays, where I'd started his ashes. Oh, Oh, that's Um, beautiful. Yeah, amazing. amazing. Yeah, Um, I must have been about six or seven when he'd done that. But I Spy wasn't actually the book you'd
0: chosen. The book you'd chosen was another Noticing Things book, wasn't it? So I don't
1: know this book at all. This is a book called The Rudiments of Wisdom by Tim Hunkin. That is QI. That is, you want to know where QI comes from? It comes from that... that oh, really? Really, yeah, it does. So, Frank, tell us about the book. What is The Rudiments of Wisdom? Right, so The Rudiments of Wisdom was originally
3: a cartoon strip in the Observer magazine in which he would tell you something about something, these great drawings. I love the drawings because they were so imitable yeah. and the, the people looked a bit like kind of... They had a look of the Easter Island statue... <laughs> and we would use them to illustrate how the mechanical turk worked or how a tower bridge worked or something like that it would be a diagram about how machines worked but also he would give you these fantastic kind of experiments that were kind of bordering on magic tricks yeah. you know how to make an uh, how to make your own toothpaste how to make steel floats yeah. how to how to use two umbrellas to amplify sound how to make an ink volcano? These are all stuck in my head, you know. Um, how to walk through a postcard? Uh, how to pull a piece of string through your neck? How to chop a banana in half before you peel it? All these like, <laughs> and they were just like <laughs> it, it, it was like it was that kind of on the cusp yeah. between mechanics and magic, you know. The, and that's an Ursula Grin yeah. phrase, isn't it? Isn't it? As in my business, at some <laughs> point, every technology might as well be magic. Yeah, um, and so he would do a b this is how this is how your tv works and this is how to vanish and, and he, <laughs> it's like the same you
1: know.
0: and then he he made the rudiments of wisdom into a book uh, into an like an encyclopedia in the in the late 80s which yes. is just a, it's just a i think it's still available it's a jo- yeah. just a joyous kind of uh, rag bag of stuff he invented the secret life of machines the tv show That's the secret it. life of machines
3: yeah. And I, I was worried that I was cheating choosing it as a book because it was a book in my house because I cut it out every week and stuck it in a scrapbook. Yeah. But then it did It did come out as a book, didn't it?
0: But he, he would have loved that. He's, he's kind of, you know, he's in that great tradition, Andy, of sort of mad English inventors.
1: I was going to say children's books with cross-sections and diagrams. Yeah. They're, they're a lovely thing. hundred percent. Yeah. And especially this, because fundamentally
3: unserious and therefore it's stuck. It was like an element, mm. of like as John just said, it's Wilfred Makepeace Long
1: is the other one. Yeah,
0: Lund, yeah, Wilf Lunn, That's
1: right. It was also my great hero, the jazz composer Neil Ardley, who who had a second life in the 1980s as one of the authors of How Things Work. Oh, yeah. Which, which, so he'd he'd been getting, he'd been living on Arts Council grants and brown rice for 15 years. (laughs) And then he becomes a million selling uh, children's book author in the space of a year. It's the most incredible. There's a biography coming out of Ardley, which I'm really looking forward to reading. It's very, very interesting. It makes me think of the recently reissued Osborne Ghosts books and. Or the Usborne to being a spy? Do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah. That, that yeah. it's that mixture of, as you say, Frank, kind of diagrams and practical suggestions of how to do amazing things. Yeah, that and you, the child, can if you just do follow this instruction, you can, you can, you can astonish it. the world.
0: Yeah, and he does. He does the most. Have you? You might have seen the water clock at Covent Garden um, in Neil's Yard, uh, Andy, mm. outside. That's that's a Tim Hunkin invention. But he was, um, what I love is there's a great, I found this great little quote from him. He said, a few years ago, while I was doing a short fellowship at Xerox Park, the director asked me if I was attached to an institution or if I was a floater. He said it implying that being a floater was a good thing. I was amazed. As in Britain, people like this are regarded as mad eccentrics and the word floater means a turd that won't sit. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. He also, he designed, you love this rock trivia, he designed the flying pigs and sheep. For Pink Floyd's sure, in the sure, Flesh yeah, tour, their in, Animals yeah, tour, yeah.
1: did he? Do you know what? Yeah. I was just thinking. He sounds really like you mentioned Wilf Lunn. He sounds like Bruce Lacey. He sounds like Bruce Lacey, this famous 60s and 70s inventor who kind of has one foot in the goons camp and yeah. another foot in the rock and roll camp. You must have met him. Have you met him? No,
0: I mean I, I would love to meet him because he is. He's just. I think like like Frank. He was in the back of the Observer magazine. And that was, for me, that was, I used to do the same thing. I used to cut out all the, 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 um, the rudiments of wisdom clippings. And I often wondered what happened to him. And then I discovered he'd sort of re-emerged on television. And,
3: and the magazine had a children's section. Yeah. Can you believe it?
1: Amazing. I, um, that, oh, it, you know. yeah. You're back on your, your <laughs> wall path, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying it, Frank. <laughs> we should go on to the fifth of Frank's The choices, final choice. Final children's books that you've chosen. What, what, Frank, have you chosen for us? Just William.
3: Because uh, the, well, because they're breathtaking, but I owe a particular death debt to Just William. Shall I tell you what that is? Please do. When my dad was very little, he, he, my dad is much the youngest of his brothers, and his brothers were all at sea um, as, at the time that the when, when he was a little boy. And um, his brother Jim, my uncle Jim, came back from sea. I can still, I can picture this, even though obviously I wasn't born, but he came back with his backpack, you know, his kit bag swung it down and took a present out of the bag and gave it to my dad and it was just William and it was the first mm. book that my dad had owned and my gran my mum mo- was very suspicious of it she said what is that and uncle Jim said <laughs> he said it's about a young boy who commits depredations that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's which he's uh, obviously that's... winding his mum up and it's how just William is that word depredations it's very it's a very just mm. William word anyway my dad read it, loved it, and my dad, you know, became a big reader, went to night school. And when I was young, my dad did it at university and became a teacher. And that kind of thread of autodidacticism and writing comes from just William, it comes from that gift of a book at the right age to so the right, the right book, the right age, the right boy. Yeah. And everything, you know, that that I've had this enchanted life goes back to that gift from Uncle Jim and goes back actually to Richfield Crompton's amazing ability to turn a funny sentence.
1: What is it about Richmond Crompton's prose, I want to say? What, 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 what does she capture that other writers struggle to capture?
3: Well, and, and that you can't dramatise either. No, you, you can't make just William funny on screen. It's, it's, it's yeah. the style. It's like she's the first writer that you read where you think the way she writes her sentences is amazing. You know, that's, she's mm. the first writer whose style you notice. Mm, um, okay what is it about like just the inappropriateness of talking about a little boy who just wants to be left alone with a bag of bullseyes and a mongrel dog as though it was you know the united nations this amazing vocabulary that she bears brings to bear yeah. on it all yeah. you know um, and he's preoccupied you know and that william stands for something you know he stands for the great virtue of just being left alone just because all he wants to be left. and i think the other thing about just william that people forget is that just william is always trying to be good you know, that's the difference yeah. between him and other badly behaved children. He is burning for justice. Uh, he always wants to put things right, and he's
1: always just trying to be good. It just, it just goes hideously wrong. I've, I, so I've got a question. Is she... Uh, and again, this... Yeah, I'll just ask the question straight from a, from a writer, writerly point of view. When you read her now, Frank, does she seem totally in control of the material? You know, because you're, so you're talking when you say it's hard to dramatize. I know exactly what you mean. It doesn't seem particularly distinguished, and therefore, what distinguishes it is the style. Now, has she chanced upon it, or is she a is she a Woodhouseian stylist who can make it sing? Yeah, I think she can make it sing. I think she's
3: she knows how to make to create a really great phrase. Yeah, and and particularly a great speech, a great rant, but the stories that work. Of the stories that work up to a great big set piece. So, where William mm. is told a lie that just as you're reading it, that lie is growing and getting more and more out of control. And it's right. happening on the page. It's at, at its best when it's just him talking and you're thinking, just shut up. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And he's just making everything worse. So, she's brilliant. I, I mean, what I read her for is like how she engineers those. It's usually a lie that's grown. Or, oh, yeah, it's, it's she, never, it's frank, it's, it's just the just, ones that are alive mm, on, that mm. really work.
0: And she's one of those, those, Crompton is one of those writers, and she, she was, uh, her dad was a vicar, she was a teacher, she never married, she never had kids, uh, but she became quite wealthy. Uh, it's a rather sweet story. She bought a house that she and her mother lived in on Bromley Common through yeah. through the, the because they were re- they were incredibly successful from day 1 it was another one she hit on some formula that was perfect um at, at the time and and wrote what i hadn't realized the first one was written in 1922 you know sort of yeah. alongside ulysses and the wasteland and the last one was written in, <gasps> in ni- william the lawless was written in 1970
1: yeah
0: which is wow i mean so it's nearly 50,
3: it? a 50 a 48 50, year yeah. career wow mm-hmm. And he isn't never he? he never aged a day in all that time. No, he never grew up. <laughs> he never grew up. But it's like, that's like P.G. Woodhouse. Isn't it? I always think P.G. Woodhouse, those first ones are satirizing suffragettes. And yeah. at the end of his life, he was working on something with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, you
0: know? It is mad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh,
1: now I've got one more note here before we go, and I can't let this pass. No. Frank to mount his Narnia defense. <laughs> Before
0: the bun oh, run. Oh,
3: really? Okay. Well, I just, I just, you know, people are constantly slagging off and on because it's um, proselytising and also because it's inconsistent. Yeah. And I want mm-hmm. to defend it, you know, that Father Christmas is in it and nymphs and satyrs and, you know, talking animals. And what, where is that supposed to be? And where that is, is that room in the house that he grew up in, full of children's books. And it's a great kind of synthesis. And where you know people are always saying, "Oh, it's it's indecorous the way it mashes up all these things together." And I think that's the most powerful thing about it is that where it's set is where where stories are set, you know, and it brings all those different stories together. And it's it's that that room full of books in his house that is the wood between the worlds, and he's allowed to do that. I think that's. All. I think of all the worlds that you know that you've read, none is the one you want
1: to visit. It's a multiverse, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, is, it? Because they, yeah. and they go also,
0: to charm. I also think, yeah. I mean, The Magician's Nephew is a seriously underrated... It's book. an amazing book. And I think that's... I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really interested because I, I think he does cop a lot of, of unfair kind of criticism. And, you know, they don't like the fact that he, that he apparently punishes Susan, you know, in, <laughs> in The Last Battle. And, and there's sort of, you know, borderline racism in some of the... Put, 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 or straightforward. If
1: we did one of these novels, if we did one of yeah. C.S. Lewis's novels as a, as a novel on Batlisted, and because it's backlisted, we wouldn't be allowed to do The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe so which novel do we do? I would do The Magician's
3: Nephew yeah. because it had that power that you get when, when you're addicted to a comic as well and then you suddenly find the origin story comic. Yeah. After yeah. you've read 10 Spider-Man Adventures you suddenly find yeah. and it had that origin story power um, which is for me
0: I had one question. I know that you had, you'd listened to our Christmas episode on uh, Noel Streetfield, but I, the Giant Under the Snow was a book, your Giant Under the Snow story.
3: Well, oh. I was, right, okay. So by the time I got to secondary school, I was a very school shaped boy in a way that was probably quite obnoxious. I went to the same school that Johnny Vegas went to and that Una McCormack went to. Yeah. And I finished my math exam very quickly. And I, just slipped the copy of um, uh, Giant Under the Snow out from under uh Blazer and just started reading it because I was bored. <laughs> and my teacher came round. He wasn't my maths teacher, but I had a nice maths teacher. The teacher who was invigilating came round and said, what the hell do you think you're doing? I said, well, i finished Said, Do you want to take it? And he just took Giant Under the Snow off me and he hit me across the face with it. <laughs> oh, and then he God. took it away, right? And I never said, it was a scoop, you know, Puffin Club copy. So yeah. it wasn't in the library never Saw it again, he never gave it me back. And then I found a copy in Wigtown when I was a grown up, you know, and I thought, Oh, there's that book. And I took it, and honestly, I didn't need to start again. I remembered everything about where as soon as I opened the book, the font again, I yeah. opened it, found where I was up to, and carried on reading from there. And I didn't <laughs> need to because it had stayed with me so, so much, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. brilliant book. Well, listen, thank you so much Amazing. for um spending an hour with us talking, it was wonderful. talking through some of these books. It's really fantastic. Thank you, thank you. And and and, it, it, listeners, we'll put all these up on the website with links to... to we
0: will, and we'll put them in, in the backlisted uh, bookshop on bookshop.org as well. So thank you, Frank. Thank you to Nikki, who's breaking into her sabbatical to pull this special episode together. Thanks,
1: Nick. Uh, We'll be back in April, but in the meantime, there's nothing to stop you downloading all 176 (laughs) previous episodes. What? Plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. We're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram.
0: And you can support us directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted for a modest sum. Patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and ad-free and all those who subscribe to the Lot Listener level get two extra podcasts a month called Lot Listed, which features the three of us talking over the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.
1: And we're still making those throughout our we sabbatical. Are. Once again, our sabbatical is a failed sabbatical. <laughs> we're, 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 we're trying, we're trying. That's all, folks. Frank, is there anything you would like to add? Uh, and you can have a bonus choice if you want. Ow. You can have a bonus choice. One more book. Go on, you have One more book. <laughs> Um,
3: actually, King of the Copper Mountain, Paul Bagel, absolutely amazing book. Okay. There you go. Great we'll put that up on, that. The,
1: on, the, on the website we as will. well. Thanks very much, Brilliant. everyone. And uh, we'll see you next month for another Backlisted Special. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.